0: You, you don't have to sit in the couch and tell stories from your youth. You, you can still go out and, and relive new stories and, and find out new things and learn even more. So, so you're not as good as your last adventure. And, and I think there's still a lot. I'm 38 and I still feel I have a lot of years left.
1: Welcome to the Dark Zone, an Event Racing Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatons In event lingo, a dark zone is a time when, due to darkness or safety, teams are paused on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone. We're glad that you're here. It is July 2022, and this is Dark Zone number 37. Today's guest is Lars Bucahave. Lars is a well-known adventure racer, doing well over 100 racers, and promoter and planner and lover of all things outside. This podcast was originally recorded back in April of 2022, and we held on to it for a little while. Between here and there, Lars went and raced Expedition Oregon. He came off the course with a good case of hypothermia, went home, rested up, and then came back out to the Endless Mountains and won that race with Team Bend Racing. That was on a borrowed bike for a good part of the race. Lars is energetic, enthusiastic, and loves adventure racing. At the end of the episode, there's even some extended Lars, where he sent me an audio file. So we're glad you're here. Have a great time. Enjoy Lars.
0: I have a big, big farm, and that's actually also where all my adventures started as a kid. When we went to that that farm, and we have a summer house over there, we had the whole summer to just play around and there is almost endless forest, and it's near the, the water. And and it, we almost were there always one month. So we just came there, and we could do whatever we want. And we had the full day to, just to play around in the wilderness. And, and I think that...
1: Your childhood was one of these adventuresome outdoors. You were just steeped in the wilderness from a very young age.
0: In, in some sense, yes. My mom didn't join us. And in yes, these things, it was just me and my big brother who just went around. And uh, yeah, we, we sometimes built like a small raft, went sailing. And when we came home, we were just out on a small trip. And it was first like 10 years after that, my mom actually figured out that we went to the other side of of the, the stream out to small <laughs> islands. She had no clue where we went.
1: So so that, so you had the childhood and we, we had that here. I remember myself when I was growing up, you would, you would get up in the morning on a Saturday, you would leave your house and you would be gone the entire day until the sun started going down and you had to be home in time for dinner. Was it that same kind Thank of childhood that you had?
0: Uh, in the summer, yes. We had a bell that my mom could could ring. And then we came running back for, for dinner or lunch or something like that. Um, we also did a lot of forestry around the, the area to cut down trees and do treasure hunts and running around. But it's fun coming back 20 years later and see that the area is kind of big, but it's still not as big as I remember it. But we had small adventures in there. And yeah,
1: I, I enjoyed it. And, and so clearly, did you did you jump from that kind of youthful, adventuresome childhood? Walk us through your, your adventure racing career. Did you start off as an adventure racer? Were you into orienteering other sports? You're a very accomplished adventure racer. You've raced all over the world. And we'll talk a lot about those races. But our, our listeners always like to hear about the origin story. Like, where did you start from as an adventure racer?
0: Yeah, that's... Uh talking to you i actually thought back and and figure out how how i i got into it i i went into the military which is uh something you have to do in denmark and i i mostly went in there to go camping and hike in the woods and to navigate around and afterwards i i saw a program where there was about an adventure race, and I thought it was so awesome because in the military, when it went dark, we had to sleep in those camps and stuff like that. And in this program, they just continued with headlamps during the night, and I thought it was so cool. And I remember that evening when I saw the program, I went out with my headlamp all the night and went back home for for breakfast afterwards. It was with one of my friends that I was in the military with. And we saw this was so awesome. And then I went online and figured out where I could find more about this adventure race. And I, I found this school, that uh, a sports college, that had adventure race as a subject. And I immediately joined that school and met a lot of other friends in there. That, that was into the sport already and they, they took me on a race.
1: And how old are you? No, this uh, is how old now? This is when you were in the military? Late teens, early 20s? 20, I was 22, 22 at
0: this point.
1: Okay. So, so it, I, it's...
0: compared to a lot of other people, I joined the sport pretty early. And at that point, I had no clue what, what it was all about and, and made all the, the big mistakes and classic mistakes and I think the first race that we entered was a 12-hour running time. And I remember we came in after 24 hours. So we used the double amount of time as the, <laughs> as the winners.
1: <laughs> and so by the way, pretty- <laughs> Lars, just for the record, as you say that, race directors all over the world are now grabbing their chests. The fact that you were 12 yeah. hours late coming in.
0: Exactly. And I think that is a really good point for all race directors is that the winning time you should add at least one hundred percent to to the slow teams because their adventure is as great as the winning times and and we had so much fun out there and made so many mistakes, uh, but but we the the adventure of it was still pretty pretty awesome.
1: So what was it, What happened over the so – how did a 12-hour race turn into a 24-hour race? Were you slow? Did you get lost? Did you misjudge the time? That's, a, that's quite the big amount of time to miss.
0: I think everything added up. First of all, we got lost, completely lost, between two CPs. I think there was 500 meters between two CPs, and we got lost for one hour went completely the wrong direction. We ran out of food. We got broken down bikes. We had a lot of gear that didn't work. Went out in the uh, canoe section with kayak paddles and had to return, get the canoe paddles. And yeah, made so many mistakes. And we had to do a portage. All the team took wheels and we forgot the wheels. So we had to carry the canoe and all that kind of mistakes. So, so i think from each race you're doing you're learning a little bit each time and just get through your first couple of races and and have fun and and see how it goes because thinking back i think it's one of the biggest memories from adventure races is actually some of those first races i've been a afterwards racing around the world. And these races was maybe in um, mostly in my backyard and I knew the areas, but it was still an adventure to see it in a different way and see it day and night and, and all that and go through the first sunset was magical. And so so I don't think you can judge a big or small adventure. It's, it's mostly how you inter interacted or how you, you, you feel it inside compared to how it is. We all know it by, with like Christmas, everybody has a good feeling about Christmas, but each year you try and, and retain that emotion you had as a kid. And I think it's also sometimes the same with the adventure race. The reason why you sign up for a new one is to relive that experience you had in the past and I don't think we should judge or say something to other people because their adventure is as big as ours, and everybody interfered uh, different. And I think it's it's really important to um, to 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 have that knowledge or. Sorry for my English, but sometimes I miss a bit words, but I hope you you understand. And if you say that some of it is you don't understand, then I can try and explain
1: it in a different way. Don't worry, because my English is terrible too, Lars. So we're, we're in a good <laughs> boat here. So, so I think what you're saying there is that at the, at the very earliest um, beginnings of your adventure race career, when you had this youthful exuberance, you and your brother would disappear all day and your mother would ring the bell, you'd come home and then the military and then at 22, you learned about adventure racing. I think what you're saying is, is that something happened during that first race. And as calamitous as it was, right, 24 hours, 12 hours late, portaging, lost wheels, it, 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 it touched something. It triggered something inside of you that you always try to return to, that every race you do, you want to relive that experience. Am I understanding you correctly? Exactly. And so let's, let's, let's and talk a bit course, about that. New,
0: new. Of course, new adventures is something new, and you don't want to to miss miss out new places and go to new areas and and especially when when a new race comes in a new area that i haven't been i'm I'm even more excited and and that is also an important part is that don't live in the past you you still are as good as your latest adventure is that you, you don't have to sit in the couch and tell stories from your youth. You you can still go out and, and relive new stories and, and find out new things and learn even more. So so you're not as good as your last adventure. and And I think there's still a lot. I'm 38 and I still feel I have a lot of years left. And I still feel that I haven't accomplished like my full potential. And also I still feel I have a lot to learn and, and even improve still.
1: And, and what you were saying before was interesting too. You've raced India big race for you. We'll talk a bit about India world championships. You've raced all over everywhere. But I liked what you said earlier about those earliest races or some of your best memories. And it's good for us not to get caught in the idea that we have to go to a big place, big race. We have to travel far away in order to get something out of adventure racing. What you're saying is, is that every race, no matter how big or how small, has the potential to create memories that you hold on forever. Did I understand that correctly? Exactly. And, and
0: then another point is that I have been teaching. My first experience was that. I I found out adventure racing out of the blue from a a small TV program in Danish television. And there were some people that put it on. And that changed a a lot for me. And one of my mission has to be to raise myself. But another equally important goal is to to tell other people about adventure racing first of all, raise the races, but afterwards, an important part as well is to tell the stories that you experienced and motivate other people. And on the same side, also educate and teach and guide other people to get similar experience or teach them how to to be there by themselves. So, So in that case, I have experienced over the years guiding people a lot is that you can take them to a beautiful place and an amazing journey that most people don't do. But if they don't grab the adventure out of it, they will not enjoy it as much as... The most important is that the mindset is there for grabbing the adventure. Is that they are open to to
1: seek it. Does it make sense? It, It makes... Absolutely. And that makes complete sense, right? The fact that you... It's the it's the preparation for the racing. It's the adventure itself. Is the payoff, and it's not merely just going to a place. It's not being transported there by a boat or a car or a plane, but rather earning that place that you see that you can only get there through reading a map and being with your teammates and traveling across these countries. And so I think that's what exactly. you're saying there. It's not just about you know it's it's we we live in a world where it's it's somewhat convenient to get anywhere, and I know that's a broad statement. And if you wanted to see the Eiffel Tower, you can get on a plane, fly into Paris and you can see the Eiffel Tower. And while it's a beautiful thing to see, the travel there, you don't really earn the ability to see it through your travel. You're kind of transported there. And what you're saying is is that through adventure racing and through adventure and by building that skill set, you get to go to places that you earn the right to enjoy the the waterfall or the mountain or the valley or the or the sea, whatever it might be. And I think you want to give that to other people. If I understand you correctly, as you're talking about it, you enjoy teaching other people to go take care of it themselves. So let me ask you this question, Lars, if that's the case, and if you enjoy teaching people to do that, I'm sure there's a very high success rate with the people you work with. You're an accomplished teacher an educator, adventure racer. The people who don't succeed, what do you think gets in the way of their success?
0: Well, Mostly, actually, you're right. Most of the people that have been taught are coming back year after year. I just finished the ice climbing course this winter and some of the people have, I have been taking on adventure for eight years in a row. So, so most of my students or friends over the years are, are coming back and enjoy what we're doing together and the same with, with teammates and stuff. But sometimes you have people that, don't succeed and don't grab the adventure and and i think it's because they're not ready to to make an effort by themselves they think they can they can buy the effort and they can buy the success but through an adventure you have to deliver something by yourself and you also have to give something of yourself to get there you cannot be carried to the finish line or carry to the success. So you have to do something by yourself. And that's where people sometimes misunderstand and misjudge things. Going to an adventure race, even though you have raced, I think I counted over 100 races, each race you still have to deliver something. Even though you have won races and you have placed top, each race is new. And it's only what you're doing in that race that counts. Of course, your history helps on self-confident and believing in yourself and all that, those kind of things. But you have to deliver in that certain race or trip or everything. So
1: so if you don't deliver, then you don't succeed. So so how do you best deliver? What do you bring to your team?
0: (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's better to ask my teammates. I'm sometimes surprised why people year after year want to race with me because sometimes it's difficult to see what you deliver. But I think what I try to do is deliver as much as I can and deliver more than I take from the team.
1: Gotcha. And that's um, the, and, right, and that's, a, that's a huge concept, right? If you if everybody on the team is focused on contributing more than taking, the team's going to succeed because you're always thinking about other people.
0: Exactly. A, a, a really good story is from Expedition in Oregon. I, I really like that race and we often come in early and buy a lot of organic food and Bend Bend is a lovely place and so much organic food and delicious food. And we bought these wraps and we made wraps for the whole team. And there was like one avocado left and everybody on the team said, oh, you you should take it. No, you should take it. Nobody wanted to take that last avocado because everybody wanted to, to give it to the teammates. So... And I think that is a really good, in the end, we shared it in like four pieces, but it's, it really shows like how you have to give to your team instead of take by yourself.
1: So, and you, I I like the fact you had a hard time answering the questions about your personal skills, right? Because you don't think that way about yourself. When you race with people, what do you admire most in your teammates?
0: Uh... I think it, I, I really enjoy when when people contribute and 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 ask help. And asking help means means that you don't have any pride. And I think pride is like really difficult and really dangerous in an adventure race team that you can succeed by yourself. So if your teammates are already accepting that they can't finish this race by themselves and they need help from teammates. I, I really enjoy that. And, and it can be pre-race. It can be months in advance. It can be during the race. We're in preparation now for, for a lot of races with Ben next year. And our email is already like, Oh, how are we going to do with like shirts and, and stuff like that. And we have already, people are asking each other and, what about food? And, and Dan is like building some four-hour meals and he'll say, okay, guys, how much do you need? He's not even racing. How much do you need? I can prepare you some meals and some dinners and stuff like that that we can use during the race. So, so I really appreciate that people are both offering help but also asking for help for each other. And I think sharing the load in the team is, is really important.
1: I mean, I mean, when we talk about, we tend not to talk about the larger world. This is about adventure racing, adventure racing teams and how to get better. But I would argue that a, a problem we're seeing in the world today is that people are more focused on how much I could take from others rather than how much I can give to others.
0: Some people are, yeah. But I think also those people are the people that don't succeed long-term in adventure race right. or yeah. also
1: succeed long-term in the same team. Exactly. Because after a while, people sniff that out and they could tell that they're not a contributor (laughs) and therefore they don't get invited back. Therefore, they their their phone gets quiet. They don't get emails because they cease to they cease to make the team better. And as long as you make the team better, you're more than welcome to race with people. It's when you begin to take more than you give that people just they vote against you and they no longer invite you along.
0: Exactly. Exactly. But it's so, also important to mention when you need help and when you need to get more right. from the team. It's the classic that at some point you are the strongest and at some point you are the weakest. When do you need help and when are you off the map or when are you stuff like that? So so both ways and it's it's really important not to to have pride too long and and succeed too much and and say contribute too much when it's it's the wrong wrong time. I've been the, navigating I've been navigating as one of my major tasks uh racing over the years and I really really enjoy navigating and orienteering and it's something I love to do basically I look at a map every day if sometimes I just look at a map just to get in good mood so now there's <laughs> expedition <laughs> expedition, yeah, yeah. Now there's expedition uh, Lesotho in Africa. And I yep. just looked at the map and I was just I, I'm not even racing and I'm not I don't think I'm going to follow. But I just saw, oh, OK, CP1 here, CP2 here. I would go this way. And then in a couple of hours, I'm excited to see if the teams are doing the
1: same. And yeah, yep. <sighs> yep, yeah. That just that's a uh, uh, I, too, have been following along. Um, and by the time this this mm. podcast come out, the um, the race will have been over. So congratulations, the winner of Expedition Africa, um, whoever you may be, because we're talking to you from the past. Um, but definitely, I, I do agree with you that there is a certain excitement when a race and and credit to Heidi and, and to Stefan for finally getting that race on after being delayed because of COVID and all of that. But I completely agree with you that when you were so fortunate that we get to fire up our computer and we get to look at maps from around the world and we could follow our friends as they make their way through the valleys and through the rivers and we could cheer them along. Um, I do agree with you. As a navigator, did you start off a strong navigator or did you grow into it? And if you grew into it, what helped you out?
0: <laughs> I definitely grow into it. As, as our first race, I thought I was in the military. I did perfect in the military. I led the whole squadron through exercises and and. Each time we had to navigate at night, my, my sergeant came to me and I had to, to navigate. But when I started Adventure Race, I figured out that I don't know how to navigate. I don't know how to navigate uh, orienteer. So so I actually started out in an orienteering club and, and start training in there. And in the beginning, we some races we got completely lost. Like completely, I still have the maps and it's impossible to think how lost we actually got between two CPs that is like two kilometers apart. We used like maybe one and a half hour.
1: Amazing, right? And, you think it's so yeah, close, right? You think it's right there. And all of a sudden you're exactly. wandering around. It's amazing, yeah.
0: And, and I think one of the key things that we, we made, I, I made so big mistakes in the beginning is that you go a little bit off and you like hope that you get back in and and hope is not something you have to combine with navigation. You need to know exactly where you are and where you're going and have and, a plan. You have the trap too, to
1: where you start. We have this weird, and I've seen it with racers. I've done it myself, and I've seen it happen. You have this weird mental trick where you begin to convince yourself that exactly. you're someplace where you want to be. Like you look around for evidence. Oh, that looks like that cliff or that river. When in reality, you're basically lying to yourself because you can't accept the fact that you don't know where you are. Yeah, exactly. And that's a fascinating peek into human nature. You know, we very often on The Dark Zone, we say about how adventure racing is fascinating because it's human nature in a microcosm, right? A a race, 12 hours, 24, five days, 10 days. And we learn so much about ourselves. And I've seen that time and time again, where good navigators can't believe that they're not where they wanna be And so they recreate a reality in their head to fit what they want to believe. Meanwhile, they're as lost as ever.
0: Yeah. And, and the sooner you, you figure out that that is not the way to do it,
1: the sooner you get better. Right. Right. When you you accept the reality.
0: Yeah. When you accept the reality. And I think the more you do it, the better you get. And especially if you go home and reflect what you did good and what you did bad. And and i'm i'm fortunate and lucky that i come from scandinavia and i live uh, here where orienteering is such a big sport we have it in schools and there's clubs all over the place and uh, i'm now moved to norway bergen where they have a professional club and there is basically training two days two times a day and there is yeah, there's maps all over the place, and you can go out navigating in the morning, navigating in the afternoon, and you have a full-time coach that gives you feedback and stuff like that. So it's a completely different ballgame than a lot of other parts of the world.
1: And I, the- I, okay.
0: Yeah, no, so so I went to, to Ecuador and, and raced in there a couple of times. And the reason why I went there was because there was lacking local navigators. So I was contacted online by, um, an Ecuadorian team, uh, to ask me if I want to race with them and, and teach them some tricks about navigation and help them for their first wide No, oh, they mm-hmm. raised a couple of wide asintis, but like they wanted to aim for top three and they, they wanted to, to, get some knowledge, especially about navigation. And I went in there one month prior to the race and and wanted to to navigate around and, and train with them. But then I figured out that it was almost impossible to train or entering and navigation in there because they didn't have the maps and just to get the maps was almost impossible. So we had an amazing race and and we ended up calling each other uh me me team instead of my team, it's me, it's my in Spanish, and I could never uh pronounce how team was uh, said in Spanish, so it ended up me team all the time but but we ended up getting a really, really strong friendship and they invited me back the year after for the next Wider Sinchi, and then I decided to come three months prior to the race. And one of the goals was actually to deliver some of my knowledge about orienteering and navigation to all the locals, because without a orienteering and, and navigation uh, community, it's you cannot succeed. And there are so many really, really good racers in Ecuador, but there's only very few navigators and, and, it ended up that we built an orienteering club with some of the really strong teams, and we ended up like drawing a lot of orienteering maps. and And now, two years after, they still have at least one training two times a month or something, where people are collecting and and go out and hunt sea keys. because you can you can do a race, but you have to train navigation. In between the races, and you cannot train 24-hour races. You have to do like one-hour orienteering or two-hour orienteering and stuff like that. So, so in that that sense, it's it's it went very successful, and and all the locals was really positive and and helped a lot. And without their help, it, it wouldn't have succeeded. But I think that is also a, an important part is to give something back to the community. And that's what I've tried from the beginning, both racing, but also give as much back to the community as, as possible.
1: And and to your point about the idea of the of community and the giving back, what's important about that is that it's clear that you're focused on your education and focused on working with others, that you kind of absorb that, right? That you want to give back to the venture racing community. You take a lot out of it. You enjoy it. Um, and so clearly you've done that Ecuador going three months early, spending three months there. By the way. Beautiful country. I was there last August to go wait to go race, um, and yeah. you couldn't find a more beautiful country, nicer people, challenging terrain. I mean, holy oh cow! My God, yeah, yeah, straight yeah. up, straight up, or straight down. That's all there was. There, I didn't. We didn't see a single flat section in the entire country.
0: Yeah. No, I followed actually your race, and I followed your dot back then because we went there on a pre-race training. In the, in the area called Yankanadas, where you did the monster track. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's actually close to where one of the race directors, Popo, is mm-hmm. living. And we lived in his house. And then we did a, a huge training in there. And oh my God, that area is, is wild.
1: That was day three for us on the race. That track, <laughs> we, were on, the, oh we were on the trail for 26 hours. Oof. I mean, it was oh incredible. And what's yeah. great was too, we, 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 we ended up connecting with a local team down there. Um and okay. so we ra- we raced the eight of us raced together, and we had, and to your point, you get to know another team. you have a great experience, and they're they're friends now with us. like we we know them and we we chat with them. Um, but Ecuador, I've also found too, and this is an interesting thing for you to talk about because you've raced all over the world. When I got to Ecuador, and we began to race. there's definitely um, in America, in North America, the way that races are put on in terms of the in terms of the the safety controls in terms of the directions, all of that. Once we left America, it was amazing how in, in Ecuador, how it's much, it's much more wild. It's much more um, open. Like you, a lot of figuring things out by yourself. And you really felt you were really remote when you were down there. Like you weren't going to hit a button on your spot tracker and an ambulance was going to show up. You were by yourself in the back country.
0: Oh yeah. No, I think that is, it's important skill set or uh, important mentality when you go to a race is that if you can't take care of your own safety right it's not a place to go race yeah and you are not ready to go race because this is not a kindergarten or some people is going to pick you up you're on your
1: own yeah and we were
0: out one team exactly so you need some kind of like first aid mm-hmm. skills in your team, you need some kind of navigation skills, and, and you also need to judge your own safety along the way. Mm-hmm. And if you don't feel it's safe, you shouldn't go there. Right. And so, sometimes in some races, we have actually looked at the map and looked at the, the terrain and said, this is the fastest route choice but with our skill set combined in the team it's not safe so we have to take the 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 bigger route choice around the the ridge line or around the white water section or stuff like that because we don't have the skill set in our team and in some races we are taking the more technical route and other teams are taking around because we have a good technical level in our team but But it's important to, to, to judge that by yourself and, and, and that is important mental aspect in the race. If you're doing a big kayak cross somewhere, you need to, to know how to capsize and come back into your kayak.
1: E-rescue things like that.
0: Exactly. Even in big waves, and if you are not there, you have to to paddle along this the shore, right? Uh, or take the boat on land and drag it. So I think that is really important mental aspect of, of racing and and talk with your teams, and especially when you go overseas. But just to finish off Ecuador, I think it's a a really really well organized race, and exactly. the people that puts it on are are very skilled athletes uh, or organizers and have a really good logistics and the people that are doing the safety are full international mountain go- guys it's called gamma da- brothers i was mm-hmm. lucky enough to go with them for amsisana in in our pre-race and they're really really skilled people and they put up like radio signals along mm-hmm. the course because there's it's remote yeah. there's nothing down there so they need a safety line, so they just put up the antennas by themselves and move the antennas along the way. And they've done the race, I think, fifteen years or something. Yeah, we and had that they... during the
1: uh, the the day of the um, the big trek. We were halfway through it, and we had um we started the trek at two a.m. and at like seven a.m. we had topped out at one mountain, and they actually met us. The safety teams were there waiting, um, for no other reason than just to check on us and to say, "Listen, you're heading into a really really tough section." Where's your food? Where's your drink? And they actually set up some safety lines for us down in the canyons. Um, so I agree with you that they do a really nice job balancing the safety that is needed for racers, but also making it a true adventure racing experience.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think those races are important to have out there and, and teams to get the, the, the skill set to get there. Actually one, one important part that I did when I, I decided okay now I want to to race international races. I took a mountaineering course in Canada actually and it's called Yamnuska. And for everybody out there curious and, and I will recommend and for all adventure racers that are doing international races, I would almost say it's a must to go and do a mountaineering course somewhere. Uh, and get all the skill sets you need to 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 be that is required
1: in those races when you say mountaineering because, do you mean mountain climbing or how to survive at high altitude uh both both okay
0: how to yeah how to climb how to go on ridge lines how to scramble how right. to like crevasse rescues if you're going on a glacier how to do like water stuff, water rescues, all that kind of stuff because you can learn a lot in the races but it's not a, it's a teaching environment but it's not a pushing limit environment in a technical aspect. You push your limits physically and psychologically but it's difficult to push your limits during that race so you have to go out and, and do those tasks fresh, well rested and that's just a better teaching environment for for technical stuff.
1: We're seeing that here now in the East Coast of the United States, Eric Caravalla is running pack rafting adventures, and he's offering pack rafting safety courses, level one, level two, level three, I think up to level four. Knowing that because pack rafts are becoming so popular now in adventure racing that he's doing the community service by by increasing the level of safety, rescues, pinning hazards, things like that. And you're right. It's really important for people who want to aspire to bigger races and in bigger and in, in more remote parts of the world, especially if you're leaving. If you're leaving the United States, you have to go there with a skill set in place, because while rescues available, it's nowhere near as expected as it is here. So you have to go there knowing what you're doing.
0: Exactly. And I think that's an important part. The, the 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 selling of Packraft has exploded and the courses hasn't been following that demand. Right. Exactly. And in, in, in in Norway, a very classic example is that Randoneskis has exploded, but the courses hasn't been possible because there's not enough instructors. Right. So I actually, during the last three years, have... I've put on the task to take the, the exam to be uh, avalanche guide. So you can do avalanche courses. So it's part of like international guiding certificates. So I took that this year and can can do a lot of like avalanche courses. And I could do that full time if I wanted. Because the demand too, is-
1: I mean, having, having built a skill set up necessary for adventure racing, I find more and more adventure racers when they're not racing, are just doing these amazing things in the backcountry. Like they're using the skill set learned in the racing to go design their own adventures. One
0: hundred percent. Yeah. One hundred percent. No, I think it's as as I mentioned before. It's it's important to to deliver those experience right on. And mm-hmm. I think I've put on races in Denmark for a lot of I think thirteen years. And I think that is the important part as as racing as well, because if nobody put on races, then there would be no races and the 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 task of, of putting on races is really, really big compared there's, to other things
1: there's there's a great race coming to America uh this June called the endless Mountains rootstock racing Brent and Nabby are putting on. Um, the endless mountains, five-day race. And it's the return of five-day racing to the East coast. Uh, Grant Killian did great races for untamed new England. And now this is kind of filling that gap. I can't do the race, but because of my personal schedule, my work schedule. So I've been helping out volunteering with, with rootstock racing to help get the race up and off the ground. And it's a, it's, it's a fascinating experience and totally worth doing, but to the larger point, racers have to eventually graduate into being race directors because somebody has to be there for the newer racer when they come through the door and if we all stopped putting on races there'd be no more races um so i think you're you're spot on when you say that exactly
0: so so when we finish this you can just send me the maps because i'm gonna race it so <laughs> are you coming to endless mountains yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, I will go with Jason and Chelsea and uh, Chris.
1: That so you are, are going to have a fantastic time, a fantastic time. Yeah. Now, have you have you been to America, the East Coast? Have you been to Pennsylvania?
0: No, never. So oh. I've been to New York, New York, the the town uh, as a midstop. Going around the States. So I've always been there like one or two days, but else I haven't been on the East Coast at all. So I'm really looking forward to it. And that's what I also said. I'm always excited when new races in new areas come. And I really want to go and check it out. So it's good,
1: it's good too, because I'm sure you know that um, people in New Jersey and New York were known for our, our welcoming and courteous. Attitudes. So we're glad you're coming to visit with us. Um, yeah, that's t- So, so, only ask you a question about your 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 in race nutrition for the for the bigger races when you're out there. Are you a um, are you a real food person? Do you bring goos? Do you eat a certain type? Like, how do you keep yourself fueled over the course of a big adventure?
0: That is a really good question and it also depends from time to time and it has been depend uh, changed over the years so our first race we only brought like energy bars because that what we heard was the thing and during the night we couldn't eat them because they were so hard and frozen and stuff like, like that and then we figure out with gels and then for a lot of years I just used gels for the first 24 hours <laughs> and I felt it was like going for a party you you feel miserable the day after but the joy was still full in your body so you could you could you could do that <laughs> so it's but but i i changed over the years and then we we raised only on real food but that also came to a limit and didn't work out that well because that's slow digesting so over the years, I, I, I divided into three categories, like race food, which is like gels, energy powder, chocolate, chips, cookies, wine gums, all that kind of stuff. What you what you serve for a kid's birthday, like wild kid's birthday party is like what a, lot, you of a lot of bad stuff. Okay all that. And then you have real food and that could be like the freeze-dried and especially freeze-dried where you can put in cold water is some of the best because you can have warm water in the TA, but most places on the course, you don't have warm water. So you need the the cold water freeze-dried. So test that out before you go. And then I also develop like cheap own freeze-dried stuff where you use dried fruit. Oatmeal, couscous, bouillons, like soups, stuff like that. So, so you can basically just put a lot of oatmeal with milk powder, sugar, sea seeds, like dry fruits and stuff into a sipot. and then you put it into like a peanut butter jar along the way, and put water, cold water inside, and just eat it with a spoon.
1: Got to shake it up <laughs> or make it into a mass and put it down. Right.
0: Exactly. And you, those you, are really handy, but no. you can o- not only do that. And and what, what we have been doing over the last couple of years is actually having something that we call motivation food or fun food. Mm-hmm. And fun food is always the best. And you can just ask your team, Is anybody got some fun food? And then all <laughs> the, the pockets, the secret pockets are open. And you can ask it too much. It's only when you really, really need fun food that, it's coming out either you're falling asleep or right. you're really demotivated or you're in a really, really tough sections where you just have to grind along the way. And then the fun food comes out or the motivation food. I remember in Costa Rica, we were like in this warm, warm areas and we were like biking up and down, pushing the bikes. And then certainly we came to this small little shop and we knocked the door and went in there. And they had like cold yogurt and raising day five, dehydrated. Your mouth is completely destroyed. <laughs> Having like something you can drink is the best and it's right. cold. And it's, it gave the motivate. We were like pushing bike up a hill and we was like, Oh my God, this is bike shoes. Everything hurts. We got this cold yogurt and we, afterward we could actually bike again. And it was the same hill, but the motivation and the, the thing we got out of the, that jogger just helped us a lot and, and accomplish or acknowledge that food can also change your state of mind during a tough adventure race is actually really important to figure out. Another part was we was doing Expedition Africa and we were biking and we came along this well with like really not nice water, but we drank it and we went along and then we bought this one liter cola in a a glass bottle and it was the best it was just normal cola but it was the best the the place we got it was perfect and it gave the whole team a a totally motivation boost and i think fun food fun food can do that dan i raced with is is the best and jason and chelsea learned a lot from him but dan is is the master of fun food and he actually now developed something he called four-hour fuel. Yes, and tell me more about that. I've heard a lot about that. I, I can't really tell because it's something you have to experience, and it's it's just a, a bag of four-hour food, and often you don't know what's inside when you drink it. Either it could be like something that is almost tastes as banana milkshake, or it could be like a. Chinese soup, or it could be like a hot pot, or it could be like taco or tomato sauce. It, it's really, really different flavors of different things. I think I also tasted. Some of his prototypes and some of them don't work, but but just
1: the the fun of drinking meatloaf is is no good. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Just just eating some of the stuff that doesn't work is also kind of Lars. Try this. Try this, Lars. Exactly. I think he had some with wasabi, and it totally woke me. Yeah, it totally woke me up. No. No, but th- th- those are, are kind of fun. I don't think you can race only on it, but right. but I think as a, a supplement, it's is really good. And I think variety, as with everything is li- in life, is like variety of race food is, is the key.
1: Right. And I, it, I know a lot of engineers are racers and they think it's, calories are, are a set number. So if they need uh, 150 calories an hour, if they bring goose or, or cliff bars with that many calories, they'll be fine. But after about, 12 hours, 15 hours a day of that stuff. You just, you can't put it oh, down. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah you no, just can't. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I laugh about the fun food thing because, well, first off, I've made the mistake of racing only on fun food and that ends terribly. Um, yeah. But the other part of it is the, I will always, inveterately, I will always have in my pack a candy bar that I love that I save for something. Like when I get to that point, I'm going to eat that candy bar. And how getting there, and saving it and then eating it, you're right. It's an incredible change in attitude. It's amazing how that does that. That and a little bit of caffeine. Caffeine and sugar, we always say, are magical combinations during a race.
0: Exactly. I have that with, with Red Bull because over the years, actually, from my first race I organized in Denmark, we were sponsored by Red Bull. And if you, as you, under, uh, you know that organizing is, is a task that's not one, a lot of time before, but the last week is like insane. Right. And you, you you lack a lot of sleep. So we had a sponsorship of Red Bull. I drink half of it. The racers get the other half. So I've been drinking a lot of Red Bull over the years. And and nowadays I can just open a Red Bull and just the sound and the smell of it can wake me up like boom.
1: Feel better right so, away. Exactly. So, so, so speaking of that, so we mentioned navigation. Yeah. We talked about food. What about your sleep strategy when you're in a when you're in a race? How often are you? A, do you go really long and then you and you sleep? Do you sleep early? What has worked out best for you?
0: Depends, and I think I actually did. I'm I'm educated the uh, master in sports uh, psychology, uh, sports science. I'm a master in sports science, so I actually did my bachelor's degree in sleep strategy. So. So we, I did a thesis um, about testing different sleep lengths because there's something about that a full sleep cycle is one and a half hour. And that is where you go through the five stages and, and then you have a full circuit, And you need at least a full circuit from time to time so you don't get insane. And there is articles where they kept prisoners awake for days and you start to not know who yourself are and those stories you have from adventure races as well where you see yourself in a third person i, I experienced that a couple of times myself Wild. where you are like biking yeah where you're biking and you end up seeing yourself from a, above yep.
1: and yeah I, 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 I just, I had to say we were in Scotland and we were on day four and we were exhausted. We had to do a, we had to sleep in the bathy bag by the side of the, you know, by the side of the river, cold, soaking wet. And we started trekking and we were, I felt we were missing a teammate and I'm counting exactly. and I'm like, one, two, three, someone's not here. Like who's not right. Who's not here. It was me. I forgot. <laughs> that I actually existed as part, exactly. that's how tired I was. So when you, I, I, I hate to interrupt you, but when you mentioned the idea of like seeing yourself from above, that's a level of sleep deprivation that I've never felt before. So, <laughs> so, so, so what's your, so based on your studies and your experience, what do you recommend for teams for sleep? Do you recommend like an hour and a half cycle, no matter what, or can they do uh, 20 minutes or should they not do that? Like, what do you think is the, the best strategy team should employ?
0: The, the important or the, the takeaway point from that, uh, from that study is that we, we put people into three groups. Some people that slept 20 minutes, power naps, during a period of three days. And they were doing pretty well for the first 36 hours, and that worked perfect. But after that, they start to be slow. We also had decision making task where we was counting times they had a computer screen where they had to do like reaction tests and for the first 36 hours the people that slept 20 minutes was the best but after that they start to make like really big mistakes the people that didn't sleep was of course a bit ahead but but didn't wasn't that well after 12 24 hours and and after three days they completely bonked and and they had those experience where they didn't knew who they were and like was really like out of it, and we had to like stop it and and make them sleep and came back. So so that doesn't work. Three days without sleep, not recommended. At least for all four team members. <laughs> uh then then we had a group that slept one and a half hours to, to like monitor the, the full circuit like full five level of sleep and they was actually doing not that well after the first wake up after the first sleep mm-hmm. they was really slow and was not reacting that well but after like two hours they have been awake there was like full alert again compared to the beginning level. So that is also something that you should be aware of, that like not sleep just before a really tricky navigation stage, because if, if you are just waking up, you're not that, that, that sharp. Right. It takes a little bit time to, to get sharp, but over the three days, the people that slept three times, one and a half hours was actually performing best.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. So it sounds like, so if it's a morning, if it's a morning race, start race the entire day, catnap during the night, right? 20 minutes or 20 minutes there. And then when you get into that second full day, when you're like 36 hours or so go for a longer sleep hour and a half at a minimum.
0: Exactly. Gotcha. And I really like how, how you see it because it should be that symbol, but in reality, it's not that symbol because whether, places all that kind right. of stuff and you are four, four people together so it's it's not really easy how you figure it out and and that I think that's also why it's exciting to continue to race because the task and the things that you you go into is not that easy and it changes from time to time a really good example is that I raced European championship this year with a kind of mixed, mixed team. I raced with the two Estonian brothers, Ryan and Silva that is racing now in, in Africa. And I raced with a, a really strong Danish girl that I knew from my adventure race club, Pia. She have not been racing that much international, but she is like a huge talent and we actually ended up winning that race. But the the point why I mentioned this is at at some point during the race, Silva got really, really sleepy. And he told the entire team, guys, if you can continue, we can continue, but don't rely on me. One hour later, Ryan said the same, guys, I'm also out of it. I can follow, but now you need to put one person behind us on the bike. And since Tia couldn't navigate, he looked really put the hand on, on my shoulder and really looked like serious to me and said, if you can handle it, we can continue. But if you can't, we, we, we've got to find a solution. And they trusted me that I could could continue at that point. And, and we pushed on because we had one and a half hour to a really good hut where we could sleep. but. We, we overtook another team that was sleeping in ditch. And just the, the, the thing that we could have been lost out there for hours if nobody else could navigate, because there was not in the state to navigate at that moment. But they, they knew that they could follow if they was watched by a, a fresh racer and another one navigating. So to, to acknowledge that you know yourself that well and, and say, I'm not navigating when I'm tired. Is like really really important, and and that race was actually really successful because we were four people with a huge experience level, and and three people that was actually navigating on a on a high level.
1: And and, and all the pieces came together. You had the navigational skill combined with the fact you knew each other well enough. Plus, you had you, you had an honesty about your sleep, right? Because exactly. nobody, you know, the old expression, "Don't be a hero." Right When you're exactly. stayed out loud when you're not feeling well. um and so I, I appreciate the the strategy that you lay there about sleeping and how it works and have to communicate with with teammates. Um, I do want to push a little bit into some of your your you've done over a hundred races, right? And so we can go on for hours and hours and hours, and we very well might at this point because you're you're doing great. <laughs> um, a, a race that is legendary and has been discussed marathon times is expedition India. Can you talk us a bit about your experience there and what that was like?
0: Yeah, with or without pants.
1: <laughs> well, I, I heard about the no pants part of that. So, so, so for the listeners out there, um, no, yeah. Expedition India was, a, was a, a, a big race held several years ago um, in India, obviously. Um, first time hosting a race of that size, that magnitude. And the stories that have come out of it have just been legendary. Um, and, mm. and I was curious what your, what your experience was like with or without pants.
0: I, I think it's, it's one of those races where it was a big adventure just to get there right. and just to sign up. It was a big adventure and it was the same when I saw the race, I really, really wanted to go. And I think it's, yeah, it comes into the book as one of the, the big races that I have done as, as a story and also like an adventure. And also just putting the team together was like one story by itself.
1: So who did, you, who did you race with? Who was your team?
0: So, so my team ended up to be what we called four nations or world peace. So in December, I ended up winning Patagonia expedition race, which was also like a, a great race. And I traveled with a lot of people online afterwards and, talk some stories and stuff. And then earlier two years before, I met Isla Smith from New Zealand that is now racing with um with the Columbia Riderate. At that moment she was racing with Seagate and they came to Denmark and we were racing alongside them a lot of the course and was chatting with her. And after the race I chatted with her and we stayed in touch online on Facebook. And And we decided, okay, we want to race a race together, and we picked out India. And then over the years, I raced alongside uh, Silva and Ryan, and then I contacted Silva, and at the first, his brother, Ryan, I don't think he could get off work or something, so he couldn't come in the first time. So we asked another guy that I raced alongside with was uh, Eric Sanders from Team Yoga Slackers that I, I raced with in Patagonia. So, so we, we decided to, to make a team with four persons that has never raced together, but only raced alongside each other.
1: That's a pretty we gutty had, call. Four yeah. people, for, for, for all experienced <laughs> racers and all alongside each other, but you've never had a big race together before. None of you.
0: We never raced together and we never met like before alongside during the race course so before and after
1: races. So wait, that wait, was wait, a- I'm sorry. You all met for the first time at the race itself. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. No, so,
0: so we, so, so, so we met each other during races. So I oh, made, amazed-
1: you knew each other, but you never raced together.
0: Exactly. That's, okay. that, that was the ex- expression. Yeah so and that went really well and i think we we did a a really great task but i think looking back one thing that we all had so much experience and all of us was capable of doing everything by ourselves so we ended up making that mistake that everybody was packing by themselves and i think we made that mistake that we didn't do that much team bonding before the race we did a lot but not enough and when the the shit really hit the fan we were working really well but yeah it was a, a tough race for sure
1: i've heard that i heard that so, india was a was a the, the people who did it they knew that getting to the race was going to be an adventure the preparation the race itself and getting home that it was a wild yeah. time from start to finish
0: yeah totally so so i can take you a little bit through the race we went Went there and and into the mountains, and the whole start was delayed, and the whole transport was delayed by landslides and huge amount of snow. So we ended up like the first part of the bike was in snow. There was snow all over the place, and we were navigating on an old uh, old map that was really old. And on top of that, we had a hand drawing thing, and we came out a little bit mid-pack and then at some point we had to make a decision and we was really keen on our hand-drawing map as well and and we figured out that was some trails on the hand-drawing map that was wasn't on the other map and and we used them very successfully and went to the first transition areas among top three i think matrix was the first thing there and we came a little bit later with with slower speed but better route choices and then we went for a huge uh, whitewater rafting stage, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was pretty fun. Over the years, I've actually been in the Danish national team of whitewater rafting. As talked before, I really want to, to learn all the skills. So whitewater is an important skill, and and why not learn it on, on a competitive whitewater team? Mm-hmm. So, So silver pointed out that I was the captain in that boat, and and we paddled down the the river. And in India, they use water as drainage or like where they they take out uh, trash. So they just throw the trash alongside the river, and when the water goes up, the the trash can is emptied. (laughs) And we didn't see it, but other teams said that they saw like funerals. Along mm-hmm. the river, where I they heard about that. in yeah, the pyres, yeah, threw in dead bodies, and we actually at some point hit a cow, a dead cow, in the river. So yeah, so the river was not that clean, and at some point we hit like a big like uh, rabbit, a big rabbit, where we kind of flipped the boat, and all four of us uh, now in so the, you're in, in the water. water. Exactly, and I think all of us drank too much of the water and we went on another hiking stage and that was epic as well and then we went on another rafting stage as i remember and during that stage i had to go to the shore and go to toilet and then a couple of minutes later i have to go to the toilet again and and Silva said, "Now it's not allowed to go to the toilet anymore. You you can do it in. This is last time we're gonna use the 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 the, the 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 dry suit, so it, you can clean it after the race." Oh, so, uh, Silva,
1: what are you doing to me? Oh yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so, but I accepted it. At the now, end of now, the now
1: for our listeners out there, that's adventure racing to a T. Right, oh, yeah, yeah. Totally. The, folks, the folks are all like looking at their at their uh, their podcast players, not believing the story they're hearing. No more going to oh, the yeah. bathroom on the shoreline. Tough luck. <laughs> it's,
0: yeah, exactly. We we are in a race mode, so you got to go forward. Then, Can't be stopped. <laughs> exactly. And then Isla was getting really really sick as well. And at the end, we couldn't sit upright in the raft. And also, with the fear of falling out of the boat, so we ended up lying in the, the in the bottom of the boat. Then silver and Eric took us to the to the end and we actually was tr- getting some antibiotics, and Heidi took us to like the, the, the a shower. She showed us in the TA where there was a shower, and she said that it was the most miserable time of, but we we, we, we got yeah, clean fine. and got a good time. yeah. But <laughs> Silva and Eric did the maths for the next sections and they came up to the room and they said, OK, we are ready to go. And then Eric went to the, the toilet and puked and Silva as well. So we ended up taking actually 12 hour TA time in there. And when we figure out we were stressed, we was not even the last team leaving. So we went out on the course and that's where we got really, really sick. I oh, think that, I that, me...
1: that it got tough then. It wasn't oh, tough yeah. before that.
0: <laughs> so yeah, at some point I decided to walk without pants because <laughs> I had to go to toilet all the time, and I think two other team members in the team I can mention was doing the same. So what happened in India stays in India. Exactly.
1: Exactly. exactly. Until until you come on the dark zone. And then that's, exactly. that's the other that story. Oh, well, <laughs> well for the whole world. Okay. So that that's an example of a race that was a bit on the challenging side to, to, to say the least. Tell yeah. us about out of your hundred races. And you mentioned Ecuador, Spain, Costa Rica, bend, Africa. Talk to us about a race that was not quite as, um, as adventuresome as that one would be.
0: Um, and by the I, way, I, people
1: I, always get stuck here because It's almost like asking someone to pick among their children. People love all their races, so they can't pick one out that's their favorite.
0: No, I think one of my turning point races where I really, really got hooked was after racing, I think I raced two, three years, three years in Denmark, and then I saw internet posts on not Sleep Monsters, but similar to Sleep Monsters from Denmark, a Greenlandic team seeking a racer for a race in Greenland. And this is what was a race called Arctic Team Challenge, which was hosted in East Greenland for five or six years in a row. And they were seeking a a racer They did the race before, but this year, one of the teammates got injured. And three months prior, they were seeking a racer and i didn't hesitate and directly wrote to them and got accepted in the team went up there uh, I think two weeks before the race trained with them and 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 we had a really, really great time but that was really a turning point from racing around Denmark. I think I went to Czech Republic a couple of times for the Czech race. For European races, this is a really, really good race in Czech. I went to Czech, but it was the first like major adventurous traveling, getting out into the wilderness race that I could ever have dreamed of. And that was like a childhood dream from when I started to go to somewhere like that. And, and it just popped into to my hat. Or at least I seeked out. They were seeking a member and I thought I would have the level to join their team. And I had the confidence that that I could contribute with something and was also humble and said that I will seek all their knowledge and 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 accept that I, I will come before because I need to learn something from them before we race together.
1: So, so it, it sounds like you knew, so you knew you were bringing a skill to the table, but also you had a lot to learn as well.
0: Exactly. <laughs> and I think that is two good points as well, coming into a new team. And we actually, for that race said that you have two eyes, two ears, but only one mouth. Exactly. Now, now in this podcast, I totally fail on this one, but, but I think that is a really good skill to have when you're coming into a new team. It's like observe and listen more than you speak and and really think um, yeah so that that was a, a really interesting part. You fly into Kulusuk and which is the one of the only airports in East Greenland. and then you take the boat to Amasalik or Tasilak, which is where the, the race is, was started. and it's the biggest town on all East Greenland and it has 2,000 um, citizens. So that is that is actually the magnitude of the whole area. 2,000 people are living there. And if you go 10 kilometers from, from the, the town, the next stop is basically the polar cap before you go to the other side of the, the, the island. So it's massive wilderness. And we had like canoes along icebergs the first stage was crossing the fjord and it was full of icebergs so it was kind of like a labyrinth going around those massive icebergs and just hear them dripping and the blue blue ice, and the colors and everything is just magical and then we had to hike up uh, a mountain and then come back and, uh, already going to the first CPS was like an adventure in itself. We need like ropes, we need harnesses. They put in some ladders and, and it was in some perspective, a very technical race, but still in a safe environment. And,
1: and one then- of those races, like you, you mentioned the, the idea of the, the CPS, I know you did Patagonia as well. Patagonia was always famous for having like six CPS over like 400 kilometers. Was this the same kind of race?
0: Yeah, more or less. It has like CPs on a summit, and then CPs in another valley. Right. Three glaciers on the other side. So you actually also had glacier, glacier stuff, ropes with you, and you had this inflatable canoe before the pack raft. So you could actually do a lot of different route choices. They could drop the the, the canoe different locations, but you can use it like in between. So there was like really, I think between two CPs, we had to cross like two glaciers. And it was like 12 hours in between. And the CP was on what they call a Nunatak, which is a mountain inside a glacier.
1: What do you, um, as someone who's raced a lot and who's who's grown over time inside the racing environment, what what trends do you see? What direction do you see racing going? That's really positive. What do you? Are is, is it newer racers? Is it the equipment? Is it the the race directing? What do you really look forward to at the races that are coming down the pike for you?
0: It's it's interesting because. One of the major things I figured out with racing in the beginning in Denmark was that the organization, they they made really, really great races, but the organizers worked by themselves. So they got experience from the race they put on the year before, and then they got more experience for the next race. And. It was like a lot of independent people that was getting all this experience by themselves. And what we figured out, or I helped figure out in Denmark really early on, was that we need to to work together and collaborate. And we made these meetings yearly where all the organizers met up at a sports college for a full weekend, chatted, had meetings, went out training, talked about and also talked about what's going to go on next year what are your experience what are we lacking what are our tasks together some people had problems with climbing equipment then other people had problem with maps and then we figured out all together how can we improve this together and also especially was it important when new people signed up as race directors to invite them and also to help them out. So we always connected a very experienced organizer with some of the new ones. And that systematic thing has been working on and on forever. And now it's actually mandatory to be a part and make a race in Denmark that you have what we call the race council, counselor that that oversee your race like you did now with Endless, Endless Mountain like you are really accomplished racer and experienced racer. So you look what um, Brad and Abby are doing and, and come with your inputs and maybe go out and test some of the sections and, and, uh, and, and give them feedback because you can be a very accomplished organizer, but you always make mistakes and you are not stronger than you. Yeah, you make mistakes. So having other people help you. It's really important. I think you're you're spot
1: on there. The fact that the the fact that race directors now seem to be communicating more than ever, the fact that they're working, that they're no longer independent operators.
0: Exactly. And I think that is is really important. I talked to to Craig Bycraft from the beginning and said, Mm -hmm. you also need referees and you also need to make the race directors help each other even more. And Craig was really, really great in, in a lot of ways, but but I think now with Heidi taking over the ARWS is, is even, even better. And she has a really good way to connect people. And what I see now is that the referee system is working even better and the referees is chatting even more. And also the, the organizers are chatting even more and organizers are helping each other out even more. And as I said before,
1: that's an an excellent point to make the fact that there appears to be so much more collaboration nowadays with race directors.
0: Yeah. And I think that is the important part to make the sport even more professional and even more a sport, because as much as I love to go to new places and to new races, I also always have the the thing that all the children's sickness is going to be there. Checkpoints going to be misplaced. They're going to misjudge the whole logistics. They're going to be surprised that 40 teams is like 160 racers that are showing up. Right. And even though it, it sounds easy, it's, it's really difficult with all the complexity of organizing a race. It's almost impossible to nail it the first time. Right. But the more the sport grow, if it grows but at least I think it has been here for a lot of years and it has to be more professional along the way. It's not, everybody don't have to invent the the the, the thing all over again, invent and the Heidi,
1: uh, And Heidi Muller, to her credit, when she was on the Dark Zone, she spoke a lot about how a big part of the ARWS is working with newer race directors and helping them out and looking at their maps and logistics and, and putting on things like that. We had a race not too long ago here on the uh, East Coast of America, Um, and it was a first time race director putting on a a a long time race director putting on their biggest race they've ever done. And they completely misjudged the distances that had to be covered during the race where they had to do some pretty inventive rerouting towards the end of the race to get teams in within the time. Otherwise everybody was gonna be massively late. Um, And so to your point, it's not uncommon for newer race directors to make those mistakes. And we can live with those mistakes, but you could turn down the possibility if you work with other race directors and say, here are my maps, here are my thoughts, what do you think? Healthy thing for people to do is that if they do wanna put an event of any size on, whether it be a three hour orienteering race up to a 10 day expedition race, find people who've done it previously and get with them and talk to them about what you wanna do. Cause they'll help you more than you'll help them.
0: Exactly. Yeah, because everybody is on the same mission to have great adventures out there. and. And, and help each other out and, and develop. So, so, I think that is as much as, as I'm a racer, I think as much as I can contribute from, from time to time, help other organizers, especially in Denmark, but also now in, in Europe, there's a new race coming on in the Netherlands. And, and also the first year there was a race in Croatia. I went there as a referee mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. helped out Igor a lot. And, yeah. and he's a, a phenomenal. Organizer, but still, it was the first year, and there were some things that I could add uh, that made the race even better. And Igor I think and that's... Been, we've
1: been trying to connect for a while. Igor and I, we've been missing each other scheduling wise. The time change is challenging for the two of us. The time difference. I do want to get okay. Igor on because that K- Croatia yeah. was supposed to be a fantastic race. What a beautiful country, too.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. So, so what races so... Do you have
1: on the docket this year? You come to do Endless Mountains? What else you got going on?
0: I will do expedition Oregon
1: mm-hmm.
0: as well, uh, just around the corner. Yep, yep. And then the plan is also to do worlds in uh, Paraguay. Yep. So that's 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 the the racing. And then I'm I'm doing as well a, a ski expedition with my girlfriend to Iceland, where we're gonna cross Vatna on skis. We just c- crossed earlier this year Hatangavida on skis. So so we're doing. Alongside adventure is also some ski expeditions, which is similar, but also very different because, uh, technical aspect is, is a bit higher and the risk is a bit higher, but right. the, the, the pace and the, the pushing limits is, is in a, in another pace. So, yeah, so it's a, a different, different scale, um, but fun as well and i like also climbing and and just came home from a a big ice climbing uh rate where i did a lot of difficult ice climbs and also training for those things is is neat
1: as well but before i let you go and, and you've been more than generous with you generous with your time lars so thank you for for giving so much of your sunday to us on the dark zone let me ask you this question here like clearly your enthusiasm for the sport, working with others, being involved, being active, it, it pours out of you when you, when you, when you come <laughs> on the dark zone and, and your enthusiasm is is clearly contagious. And I thank you and our listeners. Thank you. Here's my, my final question for you. What box haven't you checked yet? Like where's the place you haven't raced yet? What's the thing you haven't done yet that you find yourself being pulled towards or you really want to accomplish?
0: That's actually a a good point. And some of the places that I have really been drawn to, nobody has put on races. And it doesn't look like anybody is putting on races there, except myself and Stefan Bjorklund. I just joined two years ago the World Series NIA, Nordic Islands, because Mm -hmm. I was supposed to go there as a referee. Um, I'm in the referee squad and and I was supposed to go there and half a year before I I said to Stefan, okay, I'm going to be the referee for your rail for your race. I can help you out as much as possible. If you just give me your time and they start sending me maps. And I said, have you considering putting the CP here instead of here that will make better route choices? And have you considered where you're doing this awesome hiking stage? There's actually a even more incredible orienteering maps. Why don't we use that? And I gave them a, a lot of feedback. Did you knew that there is this even more incredible orienteering map? And we can add a little bit more technical orienteering for this stage instead of it's just a hiking. And I came in with a lot of good inputs, what they thought. So in the end, they invited me to be a part of the organization and be a part of, of the whole organizing races under NIA. And we actually developed the the Nordic League, where there's races in Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, where I live now. So we have the World Series, which is the final, and then we have League underneath, which which are the the races combined. (laughs) And to get back to your question is that one of the places that I really wanted to race is Fairy Islands. I went there five years ago to host a race, but I figured out there was no good maps. So we actually had to go there one year before and draw some maps. And since then, a lot of other orienteering people from around Europe have been there and and started up a a little bit orienteering community in Fairy Islands and a whole adventure community. And our plan is actually to bring an adventure race to Fairy Islands next year in August. And that really excites me a lot, not only as a racer, but also as an organizer to come and show people that this amazing place. And it's probably gonna be a one-timer. We're gonna host the Nordic Islands over the next. Many years, but it's going to be a one-timer to go to Fairy Islands, and I think it's going to be one that you don't want to miss out on, similar to India, Alaska, the one in China, all those races that was kind of a one-time one show where... It's there one time, and then it's not going to come right. back. It's such, it's such a
1: big leap to do it once, that there's no, there's no year-to-year logistics to do it every single year. So it's take your shot at it, and off you go. And you're expecting that. Exactly. Yeah, I have a race location myself that I've been thinking about that would be a really, really big lift. I've told no one about it except for one other person, <laughs> so you're not hearing about it yet. But in the, the race location I have in my head, it would be probably... If i started today it would be like four to five years of planning to put the race on there would probably be there once
0: yeah exactly
1: yeah yeah so we well, have to get the, to know the, people right you have to build maps get to know people get permissions yeah exactly to get, and it's it's amazing too. like all of that work and all that effort and this i think is fascinating and you mentioned the nordic island adventures race and, and i appreciate you bringing that up because that's a very well respected race series and and i know it's in, I believe it's in July next year, July 11th, I think is the date for, for the date for um, the next time it's being held. Um, it's amazing how for the amount of work that race directors do, the time, the effort, in comparison to the benefit monetarily is so disproportional. And yet race directors love doing it because there's something that they love about the sport and bring it to other people. And that just fascinates me
0: yeah but it's i I totally see what you you are saying, and it's totally right, but it's also the bigger of a task, the bigger of achievement it is, and that's also why you see some race directors is very emotional when they mm-hmm. have to start a race. I saw this year in in Spain at the World Champs that Pablo was actually putting on a tier mm-hmm. when the race started and when the final briefing was there he put a tear because it was such a big job over the years and like last year i started looking at some sections for fairy islands and i felt like i was in there and i was just in norway looking at maps i i used the whole day looking at maps and sections and where you, people could go and i felt it was an adventure even though i was in my couch. <laughs> with my maps and feeling, Oh, the races, we will put them here and here. There will be a good tracking stage. And here there will be, and, and now the task is to actually go there and do all those sections and see if it works out. And we're going to have an amazing journey in there. So me and Stefan and Mike and probably another guy called Christian is going there in May or in, in October as well to check out the courses and, and, those planning is also adventure in in itself. So you have to see the way as your adventure or the goal instead of the finish. Does does it make sense? You have to accomplish the the path to getting to the end line, which is hosting the race. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, And all the adventure leading up to that.
1: It's everything. It's all the connections and the people and the maps and doing all of those things in advance. I, I, I you're, you're right, Lars, you're, you're spot on. And uh, I, I really appreciate, and the listeners appreciate all that you brought to us today. Um, you're, 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 <laughs> by the way, you're, this is not your, you're, you're coming back. You're coming back on the dark zone because I have a feeling Lars that I've probably touched, we're now going on an hour and a half. I, I bet that we probably touched 2% of the things that you want to talk about. Does that sound right or, or is it more or less than that?
0: Could be. we have to we have to go on an expedition race together just to get a brief scale of all the stories
1: but wait dear listener Don't go anywhere. Not only did Lars go long on his original podcast, but a few days later he sent me an audio file with even more information about his races that he's promoting and directing and doing. So stick around and enjoy this extended version of Lars. Before we get there, thanks again for being a listener. Enjoy your race seasons, have fun out there, and we'll see you in the dark zone. All the best.
0: Apart from racing, I'm also always organizing a lot of uh, competition, mostly adventure races, but also small kayak events, trail running events, and this year will not be an exception. I already hosted Kong Winter, which is, I've done it like 12 times in January each year, and. This is like an epic event being in January and next year, 2023, it's probably going to be a part of ARWS European Cup. So we, we are looking forward to welcome a lot of European teams. It has always been a big show up from european teams because january is a special month for racing in europe so not many events are going and the whole winter dimension of the race is pretty epic This year, I'm also organizing the Nordic League Denmark, which will also be the Danish Championship and Adventure Race. It's a 24 hour course and it will be open for 35. So I'll we also hear hope for a big show up from a lot of Scandinavian teams and European teams and it's going to be a really, really epic course. I think it's one of the races that I have hosted that will be the most technical, really technical orienteering, really technical kayak stage really technical climbing stages and it's one of the races where there's a lot of disciplines. Canoe, kayak, climbing, rope skills, SUP, stand up paddle board and even diving. And then, of course, a lot of secret disciplines that we can't tell about now. But uh, we have a great uh, media setup for the race, and uh, it's gonna be a good uh, race that is worth traveling for. Then, actually, just two weeks after, or one and a half week after, I'm gonna host one of the biggest events that I have been involved in, and it's called Race to Adventure. It's um, one week trail running holiday Uh, this event has been hosted around the world i was first involved with it last year when we went to uh, costa rica where sergio the another racer from team costa rica was the organizer and the course setter and then afterwards i was asked to to do the same in norway so i'm the organizer and uh, course setter for the courses in norway and it's gonna be really really epic we're gonna start in oslo and travel around the mountains and the fjords and have each day a nice place to stay and then a competition of trail running every day and then the combined result will end up with a massive party on a boat in in one of the fjords. So it's as much as an active holiday as, as a competition and the whole involvement in the local culture and the local food is also really, really a big part of it. I really enjoy the concept and Marriott, that is the main organizer and the whole person behind it, is is really a genius how he thinks about the whole concept about this traveling holiday race kind of thing. And it's also resolved in it's almost full. That also means that almost all spaces, 160, is already sold out. I think there is four or five spaces left, so hurry up before it's, it's out. And I can also do a little promotion about the next race to a venture that is going to be in New Zealand, where Naden Fave is going to be the course setter and organizer in there. And I will go there as well to, to help out, mark the courses and do safety and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, a lot of uh, referee stuff and uh, all my work in the Danish uh, Adventure Race Union. And we're actually working on making similar federation in Norway right now. I've collected all the organizers in Norway and all the people that have been racing. And everybody thinks it's a great idea to have a Adventure Race federation for Adventure Race only. So that job is also kind of exciting.